Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning in all of the love that you would have for our wretched people who hated you. And yet you would display your love through your Son, your one and only Son. That he would ransom a people by his blood. God, as we come to the time in the service where we look to your word in the sermon, God, we are reminded that this is your word. And these are your people. And you care far more about those than any of us ever could. So God, would you be glorified as your people hear from your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 13. Today we turn our attention to Christ as the true and better David. And we're primarily going to look at verses 21 through 23, and then we'll do some gymnastics and jump back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But as we read this morning during this particular portion of the sermon, we're going to begin in verse 13 to provide some context for where we are headed today. So Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to him saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. In thinking about this topic of Christ being true and better, I think it's easy to say that we can wrap our minds around what it is to be better. It means that Christ is greater and superior in every way to everything and to everyone. But as I began thinking about this, I landed on that word true. What does it mean that Christ is true? So I went and looked up the definition of true, and it can have several different definitions. I think the, the natural one that we come to is that 
When something is true, that means there's no falsehood in it. It's, it's, it's not a lie. But the word true can also mean that something is legitimate, that is rightfully so. It's the real deal. It's the real thing. I thought about the old slogan with Coca-Cola Classic, can't beat the real thing. So we think that's, it's the true thing. I think another example statement would be that we would say of a prince or of a princess possibly that he or she is the true heir to the throne, which means that they are the rightful heir, the legitimate heir to the throne. And so as we think about Christ being the true and better David today, I want you to keep that idea of true as being legitimate or, or rightful in your minds. Because even in his title uh, of the series that we've got here, and particularly the title of today, we look at Christ as the true David. He is the better David. And so in order to understand this idea we really need to know who David was, what David was, and what David was supposed to be. And in order to accomplish that task, we need to look to see in the Scripture what is said about David and the true David, Christ. So let's pick back up in our text in Acts chapter 13. So we start in verse 21, but here's a quick summary of what's taking place in verses 13 through 20. So Paul and his companions are traveling. They stop. They're in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The law and the prophets have been read. And then the rulers of the synagogue ask if they have got a word of encouragement. Now, Paul is all over this. He says, oh, I do. It's like, can I get a witness? And Paul's like, sure thing, I'm on this. And so from there, what does Paul do? He launches into redemptive history. Really, he gives a redemptive history lesson recounting all of God's faithfulness and all of his mighty acts in Israel's history. And that's where we pick up today in verse 21. He says this, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So God had just given them judges, but what we see here in verse 21 is that Israel asked for a king. Well, and we might think, and our culture might think, what's the big deal? So they wanted a king. Other nations have king. What's the problem? The other nations have kings. Well, that's the problem. Israel isn't supposed to be like other nations. They're supposed to be special. They are chosen by God. They are handpicked by the Almighty to reflect His glory to the nations. And so actually in their asking for a king, they are rejecting God as their true sovereign. And it gets far worse. More than them wanting a king is that at the core of it, they want to be the king themselves. They want to rule over themselves, which goes all the way back to the garden in the fall. They did not want to submit their lives to the rule of God. And is God surprised by this? Nope. And so he gives them a king. God hands them a king. And we see that in the last half of verse 21. He gives them Saul, who is the son of Kish. He's a Benjaminite. They desperately want this king. And Saul would have been somebody who looks like a king's king, a man's man. But this would not last forever. We're told shortly in verse 22 that God removes Saul and he sets up another king. Another king is raised up by God. And when he had removed him, speaking of Saul, he, God, raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. So the question is, why was Saul removed? 
Because this is essential for us understanding Christ as the true and better David. So why was Saul removed? This is going to help us to understand the contrast between Saul and David, but also the contrast between David and Christ. I invite you to turn over to 1 Samuel 15, where we see Scripture record why Saul was rejected. 1 Samuel 15, in verses 1 through 3, it starts this way. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now in verse 3, we see clear instructions. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Clear instructions. Saul is to devote everything concerning Amalek to destruction. Leave nothing behind. Spare nothing. There should be no question about this. But what does Saul do? Verse 9, just a few verses over. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul's given clear instructions to devote everything to destruction and he does not do it. He rejects the word of the Lord. He is confronted concerning his arrogance that is on display. Verses 13 and 14. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You just hear the smugness in that. Saul is busted, though. Look in 14. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul busted. He did not follow the commands that God had given. And listen, this isn't the first time. If you go back a couple of chapters, Saul disobeyed too. And in verse 23b, we read the record of God's judgment. Saul is dethroned and rejected as king. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Here it comes. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. But the good news is God did not leave his people there. Jump back to Acts chapter 13. What God does is an act of grace in that he raises up another king instead of Saul. God gives them now the king that they need. And what's more is that God testifies about David, about this king. He speaks on David's behalf and on behalf of his character. Verse 22b in Acts chapter 13, it says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. You see, the key difference between David and Saul is found here in the phrase, a man after my heart who will do all my will. David is affectionately known as a man after my, speaking of God's own heart. But what does this phrase mean? Because when you and I say this phrase, a lot of times we'll say, oh man, you're a man after my own heart. It's usually the fact that we have a similar interest or a similar similar like. Like for me, if you like ice cream, then you are a person after my own heart. 
Okay? But when God says this, there's something more to this statement. What we're getting at here is that David is a man after God's own choosing. It is not that God looks on David and chooses him because of who he is. No. All of David's brothers pass by and are rejected. And they're better looking candidates for the role of king. In fact, David's the youngest. He's a shepherd. He's not exactly kingly material. No. God chooses David to be a man after his own heart because of who God is. The Lord knows what he can and will do through his servant David. In fact, God is the one who raises David to this position. God is the one who is going to strengthen and guide and empower David to love his will and to do his will. God chose and made David a man after his own heart, one to do his will. Because of God's love for him, David will be a man that seeks the Lord and seeks to obey him. And we certainly see examples of this throughout the scripture of David doing the will of God, even before he was a king. Probably the most famous interaction of all is 1 Samuel 17, verses 31 through 37. God raises up David to fight Goliath. Hear the story recounted. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David was accustomed to fending off predators of his sheep. He defended the sheep, but now something more important was at stake. It was the reputation, the honor of the living God. And so David confronts Goliath. And this is met with taunts from the giant. Hear David's response to these taunts. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. As the story goes on, by God's grace, David gets that stone and sling, and he strikes down the giant. And he is dead and defeated. But you see, David's confidence was not in his shepherding skills. His confidence, his strength and power came from God and from knowing God. God brought himself glory by raising up an unlikely candidate for his name's sake. What makes David a good shepherd is also what would make him a good king. Namely, that he was a man after God's own heart. God would use him to do his perfect will. David desired what God desired, to see the name of the Lord revered high and lifted up.
As king, David would continue to do the will of the Lord. 1 Chronicles 14, 16, and 17 gives us an example where we see that David obeyed God in what he was commanded to do. And even in his life-threatening situations with Saul, David still sought to honor the Lord. But as good as a king, as good as a shepherd as David was, David was insufficient. He was never the end game. He never was the true forever king. The one who was promised long ago was and is. Ultimately, David could not do all the will of God because he, like all people, are sinful human beings. We know of David's sins and his failures. He orders a disobedient census. And then in another time, in 2 Samuel 11, we read that David did not go into battle as was accustomed for the kings. This led him to engage in more sin as he engaged in an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and ultimately would conspire and, and compound his sin with the murder of Uriah. David's sinful nature renders him unable to be the perfect king, shepherd, or savior. He does not escape the curse of Romans 5.12. It is the curse of death that entered because of the first Adam, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And this hits at actually another reason why David is insufficient and couldn't be the true and forever king. David died and saw corruption. Jump over in Acts chapter 13 to verse 36. Just a few verses, Paul returns back to David in his redemptive history lesson. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. You see, David, even though he was insufficient to be the true and forever king, he had a purpose, and he served his purpose. And when that moment came where David had fulfilled his purpose, he met the need of the people at that time and in that place, David died. See, David could not be the answer to their greatest need. Death and corruption also render him unable to be the true king. So who is it that would be the one to meet God's people's greatest need? It was the one who was promised to David. He would be the one. 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14 says this. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from who was before you. But I will confirm my house in him. In his, excuse me, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. After David's days are fulfilled, he serves his purpose, he dies. Then God brings to fruition, to fulfillment, the promise that one of David's sons would be the true and forever king. This chosen one is the forever king. But don't miss this. Despite David's insufficiency, his sins, his failures, God would keep his promise to David and to his people. God would do so through David's offspring. We realize this every Christmas season when we come to the Christmas story, when we read from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, the one who comes after David is better than David. He is the true and better David because he is the one who truly is a man after God's own heart. And of whom do I speak? I speak of the good shepherd, the king of kings, the savior, Jesus Christ. In his very title as Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, he is by his very nature the man after God's own heart and choosing. Martin Luther would include this truth in a mighty fortress is our God when he said, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. That is the one of whom we are speaking. And the crux of the whole message is that Christ is a true and better David because he is the true and better man after God's own heart. This makes him a true and better shepherd. This makes Christ the true and better king. It makes him the true and better savior. He is the one by whom in his very nature he delights to do the will of the Father. And this is what we meditated upon right before the sermon in John 6. Christ's very sustenance is to do the Father's will. His mission is to glorify God by being the Savior of His people. Now back to Acts chapter 13, 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Paul's whole point in rehashing the history and then stopping at David is to remind the people of God's promise to bring a Savior who is the son of David. Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Adam and with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses and David. Therefore, the one who promised God and the one who is promised Christ, they are better and greater than the one who received the promise. Christ as the good shepherd, the king of kings, is true and better. And so let's look at how is Christ the true and better David? Ultimately, it has, it has been stated, Christ is truly a man after God's own heart. He is perfect and he had perfectly obeyed God and fulfilled all righteousness. He loves God. He loves all his will. He is a man after God's own heart and remained a man after God's own heart. And from there, we see several ways in which Christ is the true and better David. First, he is the true and better Savior. What makes Christ the true Savior is what he does as the true shepherd. You see, please notice that there is overlap between the shepherding and the saving and, and the king, kingly roles here. David as a shepherd would have lived with and cared for his sheep. This included protecting them from their enemies. And on a grander scale, Jesus defeats all of his people's enemies, sin, hell, death, and Satan himself. And how does he do this? He does so by laying down his life. John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He cares for his sheep. He created them. He lowered himself to put on their stench in frail humanity. It was so wonderful that we read from Psalm 100 earlier to get this picture. Listen, and he does so 
He, he takes on that frail humanity and gets with his sheep and enters into the sheep's world so that he can lay down his life for the sheep. David merely just risked his life for the sheep, but Jesus Christ lays down his life for the sheep. David's protection and defeat of his enemies, both as shepherd and king, came by a weapon of a sling and a sword. However, Christ's protection comes by his own death. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, points out the very conquest the people wanted was not found in the king's sword, but in his suffering. In his death, Jesus not only took away sin, 1 John 3, 5, but he also conquered the forces of evil and death. Now, another aspect of shepherding is that David, as a shepherd, would have led his sheep in the right ways, in the right path, so they could be nourished and they could grow Christ as the true shepherd leads his people in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We see that from Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm to us. And as he does so, he is fulfilling his role as a savior. Because Christ saves us, he continues to save us, and ultimately we will be saved, and our salvation will be brought to completion in the day of his return. Second. Christ is the true and better king because Christ's death is greater than David's death. David's death was because of sin and that it was brought into the world because of the fall. But Christ's death happened in order to atone for the sins of the people so that he might taste death for his people and conquer the greatest, their greatest enemies. And by doing this, he is able to offer the forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, we read of this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And Christ doesn't just come to forgive sins with no authority. He is the true king who was crucified so that his enemies now have been brought near and brought into the kingdom of God. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 reminds us that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The true king lays down his life for his people. The people who were once his enemies are now brought into the kingdom and it's like those old commercial, but wait, there's more. It gets better because not only are they brought into the kingdom, but they are brought into the very family of God and are seated at his table. In God's providence today, we came to the Lord's table with this text to remember not just what God had done for the saints of old, but what God has done for us today as we sit here. We were his enemies and now we are his blood-bought family seated at the table. And this is an ultimate display of love. We looked this morning at love as we looked at the Advent candle and that Christ the King demonstrated His love, that God demonstrates the love of God through Christ dying for us, even when we hated Him. Pastor Michael read this with Romans 5, 8. But let's hear it again. But God demonstrates His love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Get this. We were his enemies, enemies of the king, and now we are his family. And we're seated at his table, forgiven, welcomed in. David couldn't do this. Sure, we look at 2 Samuel 19.6 and we see that David pardoned his enemies. 
but ultimately his enemies would sin again. David could not fully absolve them from their sin. However, Christ as king rightly pardons his people because he purchased us. When Christ pardons, he pardons all of our sins and we bear it no more. He sets us free from the dominion of sin and the guilt of sin. See Romans 6, 14 and John 8, 36. He has the authority to forgive sin that we see in Luke 7, 49 because he is God, the true and better Savior. Third, we see that Christ is the true and better David because he does not see corruption. In Acts 13, 36, which we read earlier, it reminds us that David served his purpose, tasted death, but he saw corruption. After David died, he was left to decay. However, in verse 37, we read, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. This is a reminder of the promise given through David that God's Holy One would not see corruption. We see this in Psalm 16.10. David isn't and couldn't be referring to himself. No, it has to be someone greater. You see, Christ tasted death, but death could not keep its prey. God did not allow His Holy One, His Chosen One, to see decay and be left there to rot. No, He raises Him from the dead. And by doing so, Christ conquers the last enemy, death. And for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they share in His resurrection. We celebrated this glorious truth this morning. Again, don't you love the providence of God? We celebrated as we looked at baptism and celebrate the resurrection, that we, we die to the old way of life and we're raised to a new life. And this is only possible through Christ's resurrection and the fact that He did not see decay. Fourth, Christ is the true and better David because He is the builder of God's house. David so desired to build God a dwelling place in First Chronicles 17. God does not allow this. In, fa in fact, God flips the script. And it is God who builds David a house. God raises someone up to build this house. And in all actuality, God is the builder himself through his son's sacrifice and through his Holy Spirit. Christ's blood is the foundation of God's dwelling place, which isn't a building. It isn't an earthly structure. Oh, no. Oh, man, it's so much better. No, it is it's his people, the church. Ephesians 2.22 tells us that we are being built together into a dwelling place by the Spirit. Any structure David could have built would have crumbled. And in fact, Solomon's temple does. But the house that Christ built will stand forever because Christ reigns and stands forever. Not even the gates of hell can come against it. That's because he's the true and better builder of God's house. Fifth, Christ is the true and better king because his kingdom is eternal and expansive. David's kingdom was limited in geography and time. God promised a king that would sit on the throne forever. And Christ's reign will never come to an end due to moral failure or to death or to being conquered. All of the enemies of Christ's rule have been defeated and are rendered powerless. And this kingdom extends through all generations. 
Christ's kingdom is expansive and the scope of his kingdom is worldwide. Christ is redeeming a people from every tribe and tongue and nation as we see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And spoiler alert, in a couple of weeks, we're going to actually look more at this eternal kingdom as we look to the true and better city, which is built by God on New Year's Day. And I'll be honest, we could probably find other ways in which Christ is the true and better David. But I go back to the fact that it hinges on Christ being the true and better man after God's own heart. That is central to Christ being true and better. That's the core of what's been said today. He is the rightful one. What makes Christ true and better is that he is truly a man who fully obeyed God. Children, as a child, Christ fully obeyed. Teenagers, he fully obeyed as a teen. Adults, we're not exempt from this either. He fully obeyed as an adult. He fulfilled all righteousness. And his righteousness is the foundation of him being our perfect sacrifice. That's essential. Because he perfectly obeyed his obedience, his righteousness is counted to us when we put our faith in him. It's as if we perfectly obeyed. And God is glorified through Christ being the true and better David. It is for our good that Christ is the true and better David. Praise God for Jesus Christ. For he is truly the man after God's own heart because he comes from the heart of God because he is God. So what now? What do we do with all this so that we don't leave it as head knowledge? That we go, oh yeah, that's great. Christ is a true and better David. Got it, check. What do we do with this now? A necessary starting point as I was thinking about this is that we've got to respond to him in faith and repentance. Because if you're not trusting Christ, let me tell you, I would present to you Christ, the true and better. You may look in other places for deliverance from sin, but only in Christ is there truly freedom from sin. He is the true and better Savior because He is the only one that can truly save. Believers, this ought to cause us to stand up and go and lift up the name of our King and our Savior and our Shepherd so that the world might come to know the true and better one. But only after putting our faith and trust in Him can we put these next few things into practice. One of the things that we should do in response to Christ being the true and better David, the true and better king, is that we should celebrate God's faithfulness every day. God fulfilled his promise to David of which we are the beneficiaries. You and I are here today, believers, because of what God promised and what he did to fulfill that promise. That promise that David received from God that someone would be on the throne 
is repeated in 1 Kings 9.5 and in Jeremiah 33.17 and other passages because it's important because God has a plan and he executes that plan perfectly. God is faithful to do this, which then gives us way. No, we can trust him in other areas, other things in regards to our salvation, our sanctification, our justification, our glorification. We can have hope and confidence in these things because he who promised is faithful. Now, second... Christ, the true and better David. This means he is the true and better king. And since he is the true and better king, the natural response ought to be to bow down and worship him. We should lift up his name and tell of our king who laid down his life for his people. We should submit ourselves to his rule and to his word. So a good question this morning is if Christ is the true and better king, what areas of our lives Are we trying to rule rather than to submit to the king of kings? Something for us to think about. Christ didn't do his own will. Christ did the will of the one who sent him. Third, Christ, the true and better David. This means that he is the true and better shepherd. Since he is the true and better shepherd, we need to trust him for his care. He leads us in paths of righteousness and he will defend us. When we are tempted to follow the world, we must look to him through his word to see what is right and what ultimately is best for us, which is found only in Christ, in his word. And knowing Christ will defend us, we must look to him when we are tempted to give up or to give in. When the enemy taunts us and reminds us of the past sin, we run to the shepherd who laid down his life for us and covered our sin with his precious blood as the Lamb of God. We run to him. Fourth and final. One final precious application for us today, I think, is one that is often diminished because it seems too simple. It's just too simplistic. But when something is true and better, we should want to behold it. We should want to fix our eyes on it and never look away. The response to seeing Christ as the true and better shepherd, the king, the savior, is all rooted in the fact that he is the true and better God. So what is the proper response to that? It's simply to behold our God. It is dwelling on our God. And it's to think upon who He is, what He has done. And it's much like what we sing so often in that song, Behold Our God. Who has felt the nails upon His hands? Bearing all the gift of sinful man, God eternal, humble to the grave, Jesus Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God, seated on His throne, Come, let us adore Him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. So come, let us adore Him. Father, we thank You 
that you are our God. You are the true and better God. You are the true and better Savior. You are the true and better King. You are the true and better Shepherd. There is none in this world that can compare to you. God, it is our prayer that our days, that our lives would be one or ones where we behold you, God, that then leads us to action to live for you because you are true and better. God, thank you for your grace and your faithfulness that you've shown to David and to all of your people. We are not worthy, but Christ is. And he has counted us in the family of God because of his sacrifice. God, may you receive all of the glory today and this Christmas season and now and as long as your kingdom reigns, which is forever, God. We pray this for your glory and for our good in Christ's name. Amen.